Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back to discuss more optical recording technology. Last time we talked about the camera obscura, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a necessary precursor to f- true photographic technology. Yeah, so from like the writings of Master Mo in ancient China to the experiments of Roger Bacon and Leonardo da Vinci, uh, the, the, the camera obscura has been this fascinating way that people discovered to take an image of the ever-changing 3D world outside and project it onto a 2D surface inside a box, either just through a pinhole or focused with the lens or with a mirror. Yeah, essentially externalizing sight to a certain extent, like taking – uh, uh, something of what it is to see the world and uh, and carving it away from reality, projecting it on the wall and uh, and allowing us to see it there instead. Yeah, well, it, it's making sight a, a new kind of thing. I mean, otherwise, mm-hmm. sight is seeing the 3D world and putting an image of the world on a wall that does sort of suggest to you a new way that things could be, like the idea – like a, a real image of the real world being just like a painting, right. something that you could you know, move around and make copies of. And so the camera obscura did not constitute photography. It's sort of half of the story, right? Because photography has to do two things. Number one, it has to focus an image of the world on a 2D surface. Mm -hmm. But number two, it has to make that image permanent to fix the image so that it stays after the source of the light has gone away. Right. Like in in a Flintstones uh, world – I suppose you could have a camera that consists of a of a, of a camera obscura, mm-hmm. and then there's a small uh, you know terrasar or something inside the camera box that then traces everything, uh-huh. and then that would be your photograph. Uh, but it's how we get that terrasar tracing the upside down vision of a of a park. Uh, that is where we get into the, like, the the true technology, the true invention of modern photography. Exactly right. So we we've got the camera obscura. We've got the technology to focus an image on a 2D surface using a pinhole or a lens. But the question is how to make it permanent, how to fix the image. The camera obscura does the first half, but how do we get to the second? And I wanted to go ahead and mention a book that I'm going to be referring to probably uh, over the next several episodes that we do on the history of photography. This is a book I've been reading and really enjoying called Capturing the Light, The Birth of Photography, A True Story of Genius and Rivalry by Roger Watson and Helen Rappaport. Now, this book focuses on the the two main people who were actually credited as the inventors of photography in the modern sense, and that would be Louis Daguerre and Henry Fox Talbot. We're not going to quite get to them today because today we wanted to focus on photographic technology that came before them. What was almost photography, but not quite. But actually, the title of the book comes from a quote that Louis Daguerre, the the inventor of the daguerreotype, who we'll talk about more in the next episode, something he wrote in a letter to uh, Charles Chevalier in 1839 when he, he had made this discovery of how to really finally trap the image. And what he said, this is translated from the French, he said, I have captured the light and arrested its flight. The sun itself shall draw my pictures. Oh, wow, that's beautiful. It is beautiful. It sounds almost kind of grandiose and diabolical. It makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up a bit. Hey, we were talking about inventions and we have to talk about inventors and, uh, you know, sometimes they can get a little carried away. You know, I wanted to read a quote uh, from Watson and Rappaport's book where they're talking about the the intellectual uh, 
a background to the era of, of photography before photography came around. And they're writing about the influence of Isaac Newton. So they're discussing, quote, Isaac Newton's seminal work on the subject during the 1670s, which culminated in the publication in 1704 of his Optics. In it, Newton unknowingly predicted the science of photochemistry when he remarked that, quote, the changing of bodies into light and light into bodies is very conformable to the course of nature, which seems delighted with transmutation. Hmm. And this is great in multiple ways because he's talking about the idea that light could itself make a physical change in matter, right? That, right? That's what happens in a photograph. You're changing something in a fixed material object just by exposure to light. And that's like the key chemistry behind photography. But also when he talks about transmutation, the authors note that this is in a way a nod toward Towards alchemy, and that mm -hmm. Newton was this important bridge between the magicians of old and the scientists of the new world. He was sort of the last of the medieval magicians and alchemists and the first of the modern scientists. Yeah, I, one thing I think we'll probably touch on again and again in all of this is that the the, the photochemical nature of photography uh, and, and combined with the lenses and all, it does sound, seem very magical. But in our age of, of digital photography and uh, and, and cell phone pictures. It's easy to forget that that yeah, you you had what at heart was a, a chemical and an optical uh, process. Yeah, and why does why would it be that photography is any more scientifically plausible than these fools' errands of the alchemists, like mm -hmm. changing lead into gold? Right? You know, it seems from a from a vantage point where you don't know enough about chemistry to say, well, they're they're just sort of like equally fanciful chemical imaginings. Right, and uh, and. Some of the the, the pre-photographic uh, processes that we're going to discuss here, they, they do sound like some sort of an occult ritual. Oh, yeah. I, I love this stuff. I can't wait to get to it. So uh, picking up on what we talked about with, last time with the Camera Obscura, of course the Camera Obscura was known very well to the scientific thinkers of like the Enlightenment era. And in the 18th century, there was a steady increase in interest in whether the kinds of images projected in a Camera Obscura could somehow be fixed or made permanent. This is something that came to mind for a lot of people, but they couldn't figure out how to do it. Right, because as I mentioned earlier, you could have a Flintstone situation where uh, some sort of small dinosaur or pterosaur then traces everything and creates an image. And we did discuss in the in the Camera Obscura episode how some individuals allegedly, and in other cases certainly did, uh, use the camera obscura to trace images and, and ultimately create works of more traditional art. Yeah, uh, da Vinci, I think, but possibly Vermeer, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the, the theory anyway. But to have an actual chemical process that makes this possible without the need of a Vermeer or a cartoon dinosaur. Right. Uh, that is the – that's the key area of development that we're going to be discussing today. To make a light-capturing machine, something that automatically captures an image of the natural world – Absolutely. Now, in, in all of our episodes of Invention, we, we do try to begin with a discussion of what came before. And mm -hmm. we, we have a whole episode on the Camera Obscura, which gets into a lot of this. But I, I do want to drive home just a few additional highlights uh, to emphasize just the importance of photography and why photography is ultimately one of the most important technological, artistic, and cultural advancements of the 19th century. 
So for starters, in the pre-photographic world, unless you could afford a painter or craft such art yourself, you could only rely on fragile memories of friends and loved ones uh, in, in order to remember you know, what they looked like, uh, both how living individuals looked in the past uh, when they were young and how the departed looked when they were still alive. So, you know, think think about this. How fixed are your memories of your loved one's appearances? Like, really think about it. Is it a, you know, is it a, is it a definite solid thing? Are you perhaps remembering things just, say, a little to the left of reality, you know? Uh, or, or are you simply, in many cases, I find myself doing this, am I remembering photographs of people rather than really remembering, uh, you know, a, a, an intense study of their facial features? Uh, I have a potentially sort of crazy idea about this, mm -hmm. uh, just something to wonder about. I wonder if it's possible that actually lots of exposure to photographs of one's younger self could potentially psychologically delay the process of maturing. Yeah. Like that hmm. you could potentially have a longer experience of feeling like I am a child, I am a young person because you are constantly seeing images of what you looked like when you were younger. Interesting, yeah. I'm not sure about that, but I think that's something to consider. I mean, this is a thing that's often been commented on that, you know, like in, in wealthy societies with modern technology, there seems to be a sort of like growing of the age of adolescence. People feel like they are young for more of their lives and like they become an adult later, right? And, you know, I wonder if something playing a role in this is just constant exposure to very reliable media reflecting what you were like and what you were doing when you were young. Well, you know, as, as the father of a, a six, almost seven-year-old, I can tell you that they do love to look at photographs of themselves and, of course, hear stories about themselves. And, and I look back on, you know, my own childhood. I remember being exposed to photo out, physical photo albums a mm -hmm. lot. And, uh, and, you know, we had photos hanging on the walls and so forth. You know, you, you grow up in a photographic world. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'm not convinced of that. That's just some possibility to think about. Yeah, basically, I, I think it is important not to underestimate the power of photography on just the way we think about ourselves, our lives, and our loved ones. Absolutely not. I mean, it completely changed the world. You can't overstate it. Now, another example would be uh, the cataloging of fauna and flora of the natural world. Uh, before photographs, one only had descriptions and drawings to go on. Can you imagine that? Like how... If you wanted to be a naturalist, you know, a Charles Darwin type or something, mm -hmm. before photography, it was a really important skill to be good at drawing. Right. And, I, and or to have access to someone yeah. who's good at it. You yeah. Know? I, I'm not good at drawing. I couldn't have done it. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, when you introduce uh, writing or art into the scenario, you know, both are highly subject to user error. Uh, and, uh, you know, despite the fact that we do have plenty of impressive examples of, uh, of art and descriptions uh, from, you know, from naturalists, uh, you know, th throughout history. Mm. But still, we also have some pretty bad examples, too. Right. You know, where it's like a, a game of telephone to describe what a lion looks like, et cetera. Yeah, well, think about all those drawings from the Middle Ages, like drawing of, a drawing of a rhinoceros, you know, oh, yes, Durer's the, rhinoceros. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we get into this in an episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, but it looks like what would happen if the idea of a rhinoceros mated with a suit of armor. Yeah, I mean, it's it's got a kind of like a Tool album cover, kind of DMT thing yeah. going on. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful image, but it's not quite a rhino. Uh, likewise, this would have placed, you know, similar constraints uh, on anything re regarding geographic data, uh, military intelligence, and even, you know, pre-photographic journalistic enterprises. Yeah. You know, any attempt to 
relay what was going on in another area, another part of the world, anything that you couldn't see with your eyes. Essentially, everything you understood about the world beyond your bubble of experience was limited by the power of the written word, an individual's artistic ability, and the objectivity and accuracy of the writer or artist or storyteller, uh, and the visual processing power of your own mind to then turn what they have given you into some, uh, you know, vision of reality. And I think, and I think that's 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 really really key. You know, it's easy to take for granted today that I can take something like Egypt. I've mm-hmm. never been to Egypt, so I've never seen you know the wonders of the pyramid. I've never seen what life consists of. You know, there's wonderful. One of my favorite things about traveling is just seeing what life seems to consist of for for everyday residents uh, of a particular area. Uh, I have not seen any of those things in person uh, in Egypt, but I have seen. Photographs, and of course, mm-hmm. I've seen you know uh, the moving image as well. But but just the power of photographs make those things real in a way uh, that descriptions and drawings um, uh, sometimes struggle to recreate. Absolutely, but then take that take that same principle and and shrink it down in scale and scope. Uh, so now you're not even talking about stuff all over the world, stuff you're removed from in vast amounts of time. Mm-hmm. Think about the way that it's necessary just to show you something that you weren't there for yesterday, the way it's now used to completely document life. Yeah, I mean, for example, uh, think about uh, cell phone cameras now. Like that's just how ubiquitous it's become. Most of us have a camera on our bodies at all times that we can whip out and record anything. Don't remember what your uh, license plate number is? Well, you just take a quick picture of it. Yeah. Uh, And then if that same automobile gets in a fender bin, well, you take a picture of it. Uh, if you were to see Bigfoot or a UFO, uh, well, you could conceivably take a picture of that as well. And that's arguably one of the reasons there are perhaps fewer fewer um, uh, reported uh, sightings of these things in our modern world. Yeah, because now the question will always be, well, why didn't you take a picture of it? Yeah, you have the camera right there. You have no excuse, right? I mean, I guess ghosts can get away with it because you can say, well, the ghost didn't show up on camera. Okay. And yet... Uh, you, you, you look to, uh, you know, the early days of photography and you do see a lot of ghosts showing up on camera, uh, cause that's one of the other curious natures about technology, right? You introduce a new technology and, um, it, it, it often makes room for new twists on supernatural ideas. Yeah, it's not long before the occultists come knocking. Yeah. We might have to come back to that on invention for, say, a Halloween episode to discuss uh, how, how uh, the invention of photography led to uh, how it influenced uh, uh, supernatural and spiritual uh, ideas. Yeah, spirit photography, totally. Yeah. The ectoplasm. <laughs> now, uh, you know, even now, photography was again one of the greatest cultural and artistic shifts of the 19th century. However, as uh, Peter uh, Galassi, uh, associate curator in the Department of Photography at the Museum of Modern Art, um, uh, pointed out in his book, Before Photography, Painting and the Invention of Photography, photography was, quote, not a bastard left by science on the doorstep of art, but a legitimate child of the Western pictorial tradition. And I, th- I thought this was, this, was very, um, this was very insightful, and I think mm-hmm. something that's very important to keep in mind. Uh, so basically the idea is that photography yeah, didn't just come out of nowhere. It wasn't just completely just dumped like this, uh, you know, dumped on the doorstep here. Uh, no, it came on the heels of Renaissance strides in the invention of linear perspective and the championing of vision as, as, as the basis of artistic representation. Uh, photography came on the heels of the many gradu- 
individually formulated pictorial strategies and, uh, you know, of this pre-photographic shift in artistic tradition. Hmm. So I think that's important to, to keep in mind. You don't just throw painting away because you have photography now. You keep painting, obviously, because painting is, is beautiful and in, in, uh, in, in its many forms. Uh, but more to the point, you use the lessons of this long-developed artistic tradition to inform how this new technology will be used, not just to take pictures of the world, but to induce a kind of instant, hyper-accurate uh, chemical painting of reality. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, of course, there are several ways to think about what you just said. I mean, one quite clearly is that Photography emerges from a tradition of art appreciation and art creation. I mean, some of the figures who were the most important in the early days of photography were in the arts. They were people who were accomplished as draftsmen, you know, people who right. were good at you know, drawing pictures and recreating perspective and stuff. And the idea of photography was seen as an extension of that artistic project. It wasn't just science and technology. I think from the very beginning it was art. Absolutely. But maybe now we should focus on the science and think a little bit about, okay, so we have this problem of people have the camera obscura. They've, they've learned ways to take an image of the outside world and project it onto a 2D surface. But how do you fix the image? How do you get something to stay once you've projected it? And, and that's the thing we should explore next. What's the chemistry behind the photography revolution? All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we are going to discuss Johann Heinrich Schulz. All right, we're back. Tell me about Mr. Schultz, Robert. All right, uh, Johann Heinrich Schultz, born 1687, died 1744. He was a German polymath, uh, best remembered for his 1717 experiments with silver nitrate, mm. uh, which, by the way, had been uh, discovered by Albertus Magnus, uh, you know, noted um, uh, 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 thinker, uh, tinker, and uh, an alchemist yeah. uh, in the 13th century. Uh, Magnus document, documented, for instance, that nitric acid could separate gold and silver by dissolving silver. Yeah, so silver nitrate is uh, chemically, it's AgNO3. It's silver, it's basically a, a silver salt. Right. Yeah, and it's a precursor to various other silver compounds. But Schultz was particularly interested in the way that various substances mixed with silver nitrate darken in sunlight. Hmm. Uh, Albertus Magnus himself had noted centuries earlier that silver nitrate could blacken the skin. Oh, that reminds me of uh, the murder victims in The Name of the Rose who have had oh, their, yes. their fingertips blackened by an unknown substance that becomes part of the mystery. Yes, uh, not only blackened fingers but blackened tongue. He did not write with his tongue, I presume. I love the uh, alchemy-type origins here. One thing is that silver nitrate was also known uh, – was before it was widely known as silver nitrate or nitrate of silver, it was known to the alchemists as lunar caustic. Huh. This, of course, because the alchemists saw a connection between silver and the moon. So AgNO3 is a corrosive silver salt, and it actually has antimicrobial properties with some applications in the history of medicine to, say, disinfect or to kill outer layers of cells on, on – some body surface. It's, of course, poisonous if ingested, so do not drink silver nitrate. Yeah, highly effective on werewolves, I assume, as yeah. well. Perhaps, yeah, but keep the lunar caustic out of your mouth. But again, Schultz was mainly interested in this darkening uh, that occurred. In exposure to the sunlight. Right, and in his day, the main hypothesis was that, that heat caused the change. 
But in his experiments, he found that silver nitrate dissolved uh, into a slurry of chalk and nitric acid, darkened when exposed to sunlight, but not when exposed to the heat of a fire. Hmm. So uh, in proving this out, uh, he used stencils uh, of words, and he put them uh, around, uh, you know, over the glass uh, of a bottle of this mixture, and then he sat the, the, the bottle in the sun. Okay. And this caused the surface of the contents to darken where exposed to the sun, and this, given the stencils, would cause uh, the darkening to spell out the, the letters of the stencils. Right. So you could make shapes appear in this solution by selective exposure to sunlight. Right. Instead of coloring in the stencil with a, a Sharpie or a magic marker, he's allowing this chemical process to do it when exposed to sunlight. And then you could shake the bottle and the dark the darkened area would go away. Like or, an Etch-a-Sketch. Yeah. And you could do it again, or continued exposure would erase them as well. Hmm. Uh, at any rate, these were ephemeral. Uh, he had no means of making the result permanent. Now, do these sun prints uh, constitute photography? Hmm. I think most people would say no, but apparently some historians willing to take a really broad definition of photography are willing to credit Schultz with the invention of photography, or at least have in the past. Um, you know, I imagine that's also of key interest if you definitely want to make sure that, a, um, say, a German is attributed with it. You know, you see, <laughs> oh, I see a, yeah. a lot of that at, at, at different times in history where there is kind of a, you know, um, um, a, a nationalist uh, interest or just a patriotic interest in, in attributing the inventor of a particular technology. The, the thing is, no matter how you shake it, uh, no pun intended, um, <laughs> you know, Schultz is still a key individual in the invention of photography. Yeah, th this is clearly not photography. But, <laughs> it, it, but yeah, it is, uh, it is important what he discovered here about how you could, uh, you know, project images onto silver nitrate solution. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, I believe we'll get into Thomas Wedgwood and Humphrey Davy uh, later, but, but they worked with the creation of shadow images after Schultz's death, uh, and these two were impermanent. Okay. Well, I, th I think maybe we should move on then to talk about Thomas Wedgwood and Humphrey Davy. But first, I, I want to set the stage about okay. where these kind of discoveries came from. So in the latter half of the 18th century, there was a very important, very influential supper club for intellectuals uh, that, that met once a month in Birmingham, England. And these guys called themselves the, the Lunar Society or sometimes the Lunatics, okay. spelled with a K. Uh, and this was because they arranged their meetings according to the lunar calendar, hosting their dinners on nights of the full moon. So this is already conjuring some awesome druid connotations, oh, right? Oh, for sure. Like you expect them to bring out the bulls and start hacking at some mistletoe. But these were not occultists. They were intellectuals, natural philosophers, liberals, and freethinkers, uh, many of whom had a great interest in the emerging sciences. And reportedly, the real reason they arranged their meetings to coincide with the full moon is because that made it easier to walk home afterwards in the absence of artificial lighting. One presumes they may have indulged in a bit of <laughs> wine or other spirits during their lunar bacchanalia. I never thought about that 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 rationale for uh, for planning one's uh, um, drunken escapades in uh -huh. in, uh, in in olden times. Wait a minute! I wonder if this could be part of the source 
of the idea that there's like, you know, people are, are lunatics on nights of the full moon, that there's this crazy behavior. Maybe it's because people plan that night to get drunk because they know it'll be easier to walk home. Yeah. I mean, I'd heard the, the idea that's like, oh, on full moon, you know, the, the, the prowlers, they have more shadows to hide in. And that's why. But this this sounds like a more realistic uh, way to look at it. Like, oh, it's just this is the night when all the drunks are just going at it uh, because they know they're going to have more light to stumble home by. Well, I don't want to over – I don't know that heavy drinking is the reason for that. But they at least – these people, they enjoyed, you know, having dinners and talking about discoveries and scientific experiments and debating things. Mm-hmm. And so prominent members of the Lunatics Club included Erasmus Darwin, who was the patriarch of the Darwin family, the grandfather of Charles Darwin. He was a physician, a polymath, a free thinker, a slave trade abolitionist, and even a poet, uh, a truly larger-than-life figure in many ways. So like if you, if you study, you know, know, influential people in science and literature at the time. It seems like all roads lead back to Erasmus Darwin. And Erasmus even actually worked out some prefigurations of the idea of evolution and common descent in biology, but he never put together a full coherent theory of evolution. That, of course, would be up to his grandson Charles, who came up with the idea of natural selection, or at least, you know, published the idea of natural selection. And one thing I love is that Erasmus Darwin published many of his views about evolution and nature in verse, <laughs> including in a poem called The Temple of Nature, uh, which was published posthumously after Erasmus. Erasmus died in uh, – it was published in 1804. I was perusing this poem because I'd never really read it before and I noticed that some lines of it preserve much of what we've explored already about, for example, Roger Bacon's idea that the study of light and optics was the flower of the whole of philosophy and that without it, none of the other sciences would ever be understood, kind of giving light a simultaneously theological and scientific primacy in, in nature. Interesting. So if you'll indulge me, I just wanted to read a few lines from the Temple of Nature. Uh, Erasmus Darwin writes, Immortal love, who ere the morn of time on wings outstretched or chaos hung sublime, warmed into life the bursting egg of night and gave young nature to admiring light. You whose wide arms in soft embraces hurled round the vast frame connect the whirling world. Whether immersed in day, the sun your throne, you gird the planets in your silver zone. That's nice. I thought so, though apparently not everybody did. Uh, apparently Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who wrote, you know wrote the mm-hmm. uh, Coleridge wrote the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and Kubla Khan. He did not like Darwin's poetry. <laughs> he apparently <laughs> wrote about an earlier work of Darwin's in the 1790s. "Quote: I absolutely nauseate Darwin's <laughs> poem." <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm a sucker. I kind of liked it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, it's no Kubla Khan, but. <laughs> But what is, right? Okay, But other figures among the lunatics. You had James Watt, important uh, inventor of modifications to the principle of the steam engine. Mm -hmm. He didn't invent the steam engine, but he was a really important figure in its development. Oh, yeah. And I'm I'm hoping we'll come back and discuss him in the future as well. Absolutely. Uh, You also had Joseph Priestley, who discovered and first described the properties of oxygen gas, though he didn't call it oxygen gas. He called it deflagisticated air (laughs) since he was working under the extreme 
extremely incorrect phlogiston theory, which tried to explain various forms of chemical oxidation like fire and rust by appealing to this hypothetical substance called phlogiston, uh, which does not exist, but oxygen does. And uh, Priestley's contributions to the sciences would prove very important, but also his like liberal politics, like he supported the French Revolution and his dissenting theological views made him a target of public scorn, which all culminated in the Birmingham riots of 1791, also known as the Priestley riots, where people who were not a fan of Priestley or his ideas burned his house, destroyed his laboratory, attacked his friends, and committed general mayhem. But another one of these figures of the, the lunar men or the lunatics was an industrialist and craftsman known as Josiah Wedgwood who lived from 1730 to 1795. And so Wedgwood was born the 13th child of an impoverished family in the pottery business. And a childhood case of smallpox left him without the use of his right leg, which later had to be amputated. And because he couldn't use his leg, even though he was in a pottery family, he was unable to work a potter's wheel. Mm. So instead of making pieces himself, he focused on designing pottery pieces. And Josiah grew up to become an extremely successful sort of empirical industrialist. Like he approached business with a scientific frame of mind and he designed and manufactured pottery with a a scientific approach to materials like clays and glazes and a scientific approach to manufacturing techniques. Like apparently his friend uh, Joseph Priestley, who we were just talking about, would help him with improvements in the chemistry of pottery. And one of the techniques that Wedgwood's pottery business employed was the use of the camera obscura Hmm. with which they, they would create tracings of landscapes and country scenes and then transfer them onto pottery pieces for decoration. And like many of his friends among the lunatics, Wedgwood was a political liberal, an abolitionist. And on top of his technical inventiveness in the the pottery making and glazing process, Wedgwood was apparently super innovative in business marketing. Uh, I was reading a 2009 article in the New York Times by Judith Flanders who wrote, quote, most if not all of the common techniques in 20th century sales, direct mail, money back guarantees, traveling salesman, self-service, free delivery, buy one, get one free, illustrated catalogs came from Josiah Wedgwood. Oh, wow. So when you, next time you go for your BOGO deal, <laughs> you think about this potter. <laughs> But anyway, out of all this, the you know the Lunatics Society, the the, the Josiah Wedgwood pottery business, uh, out of all this context and family history came Josiah Wedgwood's fourth son, Thomas Wedgwood, known as Tom, the youngest in the family, who was born in 1771. And according to descriptions at the time, Tom Wedgwood was – he was allegedly a child very much in the spirit of the best aspects of the lunatics. He combined thoughtfulness, scientific thinking, uh, conscience, you know, industriousness. If you read the accounts of him from people who knew him, it seems like people were gaga for Tom Wedgwood. Like Watson and Rappaport quote one friend of his who said Tom was, quote, a strange and wonderful being, full <laughs> of goodness, benevolence, with a mind stored with ideas – a man of wonderful talents, a tact of taste, acute beyond description, with even good nature and mild manners. And the English poet William Wordsworth, with whom, of course, uh, uh, Thomas was friends, wrote of him like this, quote, 
His calm and dignified manner, united with his tall person and beautiful face, produced in me an impression of sublimity beyond what I had ever experienced from the, imper- from the appearance of any other human being. <laughs> like, what, what, what is it with this guy? Well, it sounds like he's, he's tall and handsome, so that maybe helps a little bit. I guess Wordsworth's just crushing on him really yeah. hard. But at the same time, unfortunately, Tom faced uh, a lot of health problems. He had had poor health since childhood. Uh, and it's it's written that if he'd been in better health, he might actually have been more likely to really enter the family pottery business in earnest. Like there are indications that his father, Josiah, intended him to be in the family business. He wrote that he intended him to be, quote, the traveler and negotiator for the firm. So he could have been all over the place negotiating big, big pottery mm-hmm. deals. Um, but instead, it seems that some combination of his illnesses, his his poor health, and his sort of lack of interest in pottery kept him out of the business, and instead he focused on private interests, including art and science. He was apparently good at drawing, and he really loved chemistry. So he pursued experiments, sometimes to the point of exhaustion with different chemicals, and he was encouraged in his scientific pursuits by figures like Erasmus Darwin and Joseph Priestley, the latter of whom encouraged him specifically to study the mysterious properties of light and heat. And so light especially grabbed Tom's imagination. He became really immersed in the study of light and optics and photochemistry. He had studied Isaac Newton. He he knew a good bit about the properties of light. But at that point still, no one had come up with a method for making the image projected in a camera obscura stay put after the light source changed or disappeared. And so what Tom Wedgwood wanted to do was to take the principles of the camera obscura and combine them with chemistry to fix the image image, in other words, to figure out how to create the first photograph. And eventually, around sometime around the turn of the 1800s, we don't know exactly what year this was, Wedgwood had discovered a method to produce what came to be called photograms or shadowgrams or silver pictures. Mm. I kind of like shadowgrams. Shadowgrams sounds good. Sounds like something uh, elves would do at family reunions. Oh, yeah. Uh, So I want to quote a section describing this process from uh, Watson and Rappaport's book. They write about these shadowgrams, quote, He achieved them by applying a mixture of silver nitrate dissolved in water to pieces of paper and then exposing the paper to the light with small flat objects such as leaves or insects' wings laid on their surface. He also tried using pieces of white chamois leather as the medium, which proved more successful. The leather readily soaked up the silver nitrate solution, and it is possible that the ingredients used in tanning, such as galls and salts, that were already present in it reacted with the silver nitrate, giving a faster and more successful response. So he, he's making a, a, an improvement on the, the Schultz uh, silver nitrate bottle, right? So he's getting a flat surface, mm-hmm. soaking it with silver nitrate, and this reacts to the light, creating these silhouette images. And, and it really did work. But it had severe limitations, the most important limitation among them being that the shadowgrams were delicate creatures of the darkness. You couldn't expose them to any bright lights or they would turn dark all over. 
So you could go to all this trouble of creating a fixed shadowgram inside a darkened box, but as soon as you take it out into the sunlight to look at what you've accomplished, it turns dark and becomes ruined. And so Wedgwood literally had to show his shadowgrams to his friends and to people he, you know, he wanted to understand what he was doing. He had to show them these things at night by faint candlelight or else they would be annihilated. So we have a, a photochemical process here. Yeah. We have a photographic process but it is not resulting in something that we can really call a photograph. It is a, a an ephemeral uh, uh, product that, re- that, that results. That's the key. It's ephemerality. I mean, other than that, you could say that these are the first real photographs, mm-hmm. except that they they didn't stay. You know, they were they were so delicate, and when exposed to light, they would wither. And so, a few years later, Wedgwood collaborated with his friend Humphrey Davy, uh, who. You know, I always think that's a member of the monkeys, but I have to remember (laughs) it's not. He's actually a chemist. Humphrey Davy was a professor of chemistry at the Royal Institution at the time. This would have been, you know, around around the year 1800. And together they reproduced Wedgwood's shadowgram experiments in the laboratory. And Humphrey Davy himself had already been interested in this issue of of, uh, the powers of light and of recording light on a medium. In, In 1797, he had written, quote, What we mean by nature is a series of visible images, but these are constituted by light. Hence, the worshiper of nature is a worshiper of light. Again, this same kind of sentence, like the primacy of light in all of nature and all of the natural sciences, like Roger Bacon, like uh, Erasmus Darwin. And again, together, they were able to fix an image, but they couldn't keep it fixed. They couldn't figure out how to protect the image from subsequent exposure to light. And unfortunately, Tom Wedgwood never published his findings because he was in bad shape by the early 1800s. At some point in the 1790s, one of the dangers of being friends with Erasmus Darwin is that he will apparently prescribe you opium for your health ills. And uh, Erasmus Darwin had prescribed him opium. Uh, Unfortunately, this, of course, turned into an opium addiction that would go on to plague him for years. And uh, this seemed to be a common problem in these circles. Like Wedgwood was friends with the romantic poet we already mentioned, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who had you know, said that one of Darwin's poems nauseated him. Uh, but also, you know, Coleridge had severe opium issues. Oh, yes. He wrote uh, Confessions of an English Opium Eater, uh, which, uh, of course, gets into some of this and, you know, describes these visions of crocodilians uh, that, would, uh, that he'd experience. Yeah. Oh, wait, what am I saying? It wasn't uh, Coleridge. It was uh, Thomas de Quincey that wrote Confessions of an English Opium Eater. Sorry about that. No need to be sorry. It's all opium under the bridge. <laughs> and so, unfortunately, Wedgwood died in 1805 without publicizing his work on the Shadowgrams. But fortunately, Humphrey Davy, his collaborator and friend, published them instead. And so in 1802, a few years before Wedgwood died, uh, Davy published, quote, an account of a method of copying paintings upon glass and of making profiles by the agency of light upon nitrate of silver. And this was in the Journal of the Royal Institution in 1802. Uh, and Davy did give Tom Wedgwood credit for the discovery. So he didn't like steal, he didn't steal his credit, <laughs> he, but he did do the work, I guess. Ah. That was a gentlemanly gesture. But here we we come across just like a further subdivision of this problem. Like before we said that in order for something to really constitute photography, you had to be able to focus an image on a 2D surface and somehow fix the image there. And here Wedgwood and Davy had a, a sort of method for fixing the image, but the problem was they couldn't stop the image from from continuing to fix when they wanted it to. Subsequent exposure to light would just keep exposing the shadowgram until it contained no information anymore. 
more. So the second half of the problem of photography I think now has to be divided in two. Fixing the image really means exposing the original image and fixing it in place but then preventing additional exposure to light from corrupting the first image. So, so from here, this really becomes the problem. And Davey, unfortunately, did not pursue this research much further. Uh, he never discovered the solution to the problem, though he did predict that wh whenever someone was able to solve this problem, to stop the image from continuing to expose and, and darken all over, it would, quote, render the process as useful as it is elegant. Hmm. Now, in the next episode, we're going to explore the, the two figures who are most often credited with actually inventing true photography in the 1830s, usually in 1839. And these figures, we mentioned their names earlier, of course, being Louis Daguerre and Henry Fox Talbot. But before we get to them, I think we should mention at least one more important precursor to the photographic revolution, and that is the work of uh, Joseph Nicephor Nieps. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back... We'll start talking about Nieps. All right, we're back. Now, before we started recording this episode, I think Robert and I said the word Nieps about a hundred times. <laughs> I know it's not his fault, but I cannot think about him without thinking about the – are they the, called the, the Yip Yips on Sesame Street? Yeah, the, I, I thought about them as well, the, the, the alien creatures. And then I also thought about the knights who say Neep. The Monty Python, because, you know, I guess it would be the knights who say Nieps. Uh, but yes, Joseph Nieps uh, lived 1765 through 1833. He was a French inventor, a retired army officer, and uh, he's sometimes credited as the inventor of photography, uh, but is at the very least a key figure in the invention of photography, because his discoveries were uh, later improved on uh, by Daguerre and Talbot. But what Nieps actually did here was he discovered a way to fix images on a pewter plate covered in bitumen, uh, bitumen of uh, Judea to be specific. Bitumen, of course, is a substance we've discussed on Stuff to Blow Your Mind uh, mm -hmm. in the past, uh, in part because it's where we get the word mummy. Uh, we also mentioned it in the invention episode on roads because it is basically an asphalt of Asia Minor used in, uh, you know, in, in ancient times as a cement and a mortar, but also used uh, for various other uh, uses, cosmetics, uh, etc. Okay, so how does this process work? Okay, so the process was heliography which I think is a nice term. Sun writing. Yeah, sun oh, writing. it makes me think of earlier we mentioned uh, how Daguerre wrote, you know, the sun will make my drawings for me. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, but to understand how it works, you have to first understand how bitumen was used in making etchings on copper plates at the time. Okay. So you coat a copper plate in bitumen and then you etch something on it by scratching away uh, the bitumen and exposing the copper. So you got this copper plate. It's coated in this asphalt stuff, uh, and then you scratch away. So you say you scratch a donkey into it or something. Okay, right? so it's kind of like a, like an engraving, right? Uh, well, that's exactly yeah what what it's going to be used for. Um, uh, because uh, after this, you bathe it in acid, and that darkens the exposed areas. Everywhere mm. you scratched away some of the bitumen, it is going to darken the copper. Okay. And then you dissolve the bitumen itself in solvent, and you could then use the plate to press the etching into parchment. Okay. Now, Nieps noticed that light made the bitumen less soluble. Hmm. So lay an engraving uh, printed sheet of paper over all of this, expose it to light, and then you could use a solvent to remove all but the light-hardened portions of the bitumen. 
1822, he used this very technique to make an exact copy of an etching of Pope Pius VII. Uh, but then it was later destroyed in one of his experiments. Oops. Yeah, but but it was, you know, a copy. Uh, 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 and in 1825, he made a copy of an etching of a man on a horse. And this one, this etching, uh, this copy survives to this day, uh, the earliest example of a photographically created image. And he also did one of a woman at a spinning wheel. Uh, these are, in effect, the oldest photocopies in the world. Wow. It would be wrong to call them a true photograph. They are uh, you know, products of uh, photographic technology, but they are essentially photocopies. I'm looking at it right now. So we've got a young man, I think, in a tricorn hat leading a horse by the bit. The horse looks very uh, kind of riled up and, and muscly, and the guy looks very disturbed. Yeah. So he, he made a copy of an etching here. Uh -huh. Again, not photography yet, but but getting closer and closer. The thing is, if you combine this technique with the camera obscura, which which Nips also had experimented with earlier on, uh, then you have a true photograph. Uh, so the, the image is cast upon the bitumen-coated plate. And in 1826 or 1827, he used this method to take a photo of a view from a window in his house. And the result is the oldest known camera photograph in existence. It's... Uh, I'll try to include this image uh, on the landing page for this episode at inventionpod.com. Uh, it, is, it is rough. It's kind of hard to tell what you're looking at. Uh, but it is a photograph uh, created via this technique. It has an amazing ghostly quality, though. It, it does. I mean, it looks like something from the Ring video. <laughs> yeah, it really does. But also just knowing what you're looking at, yeah. uh, there's something kind of spooky about it. You're, like, you're peering into like the, the first of its kind of a way of looking at the world in history. Yeah. So uh, from here, in 1829, he would go on to partner with Louis de, de Guerre, uh, who we mentioned already. Uh, and they would, the partnership would continue until Nieps died in 1833 at the age of 68. And I guess in the next episode, we're going to pick up with the stories of Louis Daguerre and Henry Fox Talbot, who are generally create, uh, credited as actually inventing photography as we know it now. That's right. Uh, but even even then, so so far it's been just I think a, a fascinating journey, just to you know look at at what the world was sort of like before photography, and and explore these different technologies that all kind of come together. Because it's not, and I guess this is the case really with with so many technologies that either we discuss in the show or we'll discuss in the future, where it you know it's not just one area of innovation and invention, but it's several different areas. So we have you know the the camera obscura, we have these these etching technologies, we have these uh, you know, the, the, these these new discoveries about various chemical properties, all mm. of them coming together uh, at just the right time, analyzed by just the right people, and then uh, brought to new life in the form of a, a brand new technology. One thing I want to continue to explore in the next episode, I think, is the, um, is the relationship between technology and art. And that's something that I think really comes through, especially in the life of Louis Daguerre. So I'm very excited to talk about that. That's right. So look for all that in the next episode of Invention. In the meantime, if you want to catch up on past episodes of Invention, 
Again, head on over to inventionpod.com. That is the the website for this show. You'll find all the episodes. You'll find uh, links out to a few different uh, social media accounts. If you want to discuss this episode with other listeners, uh, you should go on over to Facebook. There is a group there, Stuff to Blow Your Mind Discussion Module. It is a place where uh, folks who listen to uh, Invention and Stuff to Blow Your Mind uh, hang out, discuss uh, topics that we've talked about, discuss topics we should talk about, uh, and just share you know, general, generally interesting content with each other. A lot of squirrel memes too, let's oh, be yeah. honest. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's all good. <laughs> okay, uh, huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.